Generally speaking, there, there are uh, three things that I think every unconverted heart believes. I think they believe that God, there is a God that exists. I think they believe that if we are good, that God will accept us, and they believe that they are good. And the way that they determine whether their goodness or not is really dependent upon God's commands. They, they believe if they can just hold to God's commands, commands being, uh, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. If they can just keep those commands enough, or at least more than what they disobey them, then somehow, some way, they will be made right before God and received by Him. Now, the problem with this is this is completely the opposite truth in the message that the Bible actually teaches. Uh, The Bible teaches this, that there is a God, that he will receive you if you are good, and you and I are not good. It teaches from the beginning to end that you and I can be extremely sincere in wanting to do the right thing. We can try really, really hard, but our problem is we always fall short of the standard of God. That is your problem. That is my problem. It's mankind's problem. Uh, the common misunderstanding is that people often believe that, that God gave us the law. He gave us things like the Ten Commandments uh, as a means by which you and I could make ourselves right before God. And as we saw last week in a kind of difficult message, we saw that that's not the case. That's never been God's plan. In fact, we need to understand that when he sent Jesus Christ to come and die for our sins, that wasn't plan B. Plan A was not hundreds of years before to give us the law through Moses and say, hey, if you want to be right before me, obey this. If not, you're cursed. God figured out that we couldn't do it. And then finally, in kind of like a Hail Mary, sends his son Jesus to be able to save us. No, what we found is that God's gracious saving of us based on what he does rather than what we do was actually his original plan all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 12 with his unconditional promise to Moses. So we understand that, or at least we should understand a lot of that by now, but the question still remains, here's the question, if the law was not given to us to save us, then what's the purpose? Why did God give the law to begin with? And fortunately for us, Paul actually asked that question here in this text, and he actually answers it to us in two ways. First of all, what he does is he, gives a, he tells us the law's purpose in the life of an unbeliever, uh, then he shows us the, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the purpose of the law and the life of a believer. So we want to take a look at both of those this morning. First of all, beginning in verse 19, let's take a look at the law's purpose in the life of an unbeliever. Verse 19 says this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, he says, that, look, the reason that God gave us a law was not to use it in order to make ourselves right before God. He gave it to us because of sin. That's what he means by transgressions. If there was no sin, there would be no reason for the law. We understand that, right? We understand that we have rules in our own home, don't you? Kids could probably vouch for that, probably too many rules. But we have rules in, in, in our house. No, no fighting, no spitting, no biting, no shiving, Right? with an illegal shiv inside that, and you say, well, what kind, what kind of house are you running over there? Well, the same kind of house you're running over there, I assure you, right? And, and the reason that we give these rules of not biting and all these other things is because if we don't, there's a tendency for the little critters to bite. 
And so we not only tell them that this is wrong, but we also give a penalty to them to try to dissuade them from doing the things that we don't ultimately want them to do. This is true in the home. It's true in the classroom. There's often classroom regulations. The, the teacher might say, hey, look, there's no cheating. Keep your eyes on your own paper. If you're caught cheating, you're going to fail. That's the consequence of breaking the law. Of course, there are laws that we have public laws and threats of penalties of breaking the law. If there was no sin, there would be no need for signs that say speeding fines doubled in school zone. Why? Because if there is no sin, there's no need for rules, no needs for regulations, laws, and threats if they were to be broken. None of that. Then why does sin exist, or why does the law exist? It doesn't make us good, but what it does is it helps us, first of all, to restrain us from destroying ourselves and other people. It can't make us do the right thing, but if the penalty of breaking that law is great enough, it may cause us to be more restrained and not act out on, on the full amount of the sin that we are capable of. And, and so again, it doesn't make us good, it just, it just makes us re- restrained. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been so mad at somebody that you actually said to them, oh, I could kill you right now? You ever done that? No, you've never done that. No, your way of killing is, I'll pinch your head off. That's murder as well, if you pinch someone's head off. So, same thing. I'm so mad, I I could kill them. Now, most of the time when we say that, we're not actually thinking about killing the person. We're demonstrating what level of anger we've come to. Uh, But there are people, you you know as well as I do, that there are people in prisons today who have killed people because they weren't that mad at them. And so the question is, is, is are, do you not kill somebody when you get mad at them because you're good and you don't have a heart of a murderer? Or do you not kill them uh, because you watched all 14 seasons and all 406 episodes of Forensic Files? And you realize that there's no way I'm going to be able to get away from this effectively. I'm going to get caught eventually and, they're going to, and I'm going to be 407, episode 407, right? Is that what's keeping you? So again, the law is not given to make you and I not have a murderous heart. It can't do that. What it does is it just restrains us enough so that you and I don't spiral into a level of sin that we literally harm ourselves and harm other people. So the first part of the law for an unbeliever is given to restrain. The second reason why it's given for the unbeliever is to reveal. Notice, if you will, in the next part of our text, it says, uh, it says this, it says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, a medi- intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, full disclosure, I don't completely understand what Paul's saying, all right? I read this passage, and I think of Peter's words when he said, some things Paul writes are hard to understand. Here's one of them. And uh, when I try to cheat and I go over to the commentaries to find out who else understands what he's saying, when they basically say, guys that I look after and respect go, nobody can be sure what Paul is saying here except for Paul and the Holy Spirit, I realize I'm in trouble, right? And so I'm, to this point, though, is as a believer, I have a responsibility to try to come to a conclusion about what God is saying. Uh, on second, the doubly from that, I have a responsibility as your pastor to try to do the best to explain the Word of God to you, with you understanding, I'm already kind of tapping out saying I'm not completely sure, but let me give you my best understanding of this. When God gave the covenant promise to Abraham, it was, he gave it to him directly. You remember in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, he goes directly to Abraham, and what does he do? He goes, I'm going to give you this promise, and it's unconditional. 
It doesn't matter what you do or don't. These are the blessings I'm going to give you, all right? But when God went and gave the promise through Moses to the people of Israel, he didn't give it directly to Israel. He gave it through an intermediary, through angels, and through, uh, and, and through Moses himself. Now, we pick this up in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. So Moses is writing in Deuteronomy about what happened and the circumstances around the time that God gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. And he describes it this way. He says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount uh, Paranoias. And he says, And he came from ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So remember, when God gives the law through Moses to Israel, it's on Mount Sinai, and this is apocalyptic. This is huge. There are 10,000s of angels uh, all over this mountain. There is lightning, there is thunder, there is the holiness of God that is shaking this very mountain. And as he begins to give the law, part of the law is, thou shalt make no graven image. But what are the people, God's people, doing at the foot of the mountain? They're doing that very thing that God had commanded them not to do. They're making a graven image, a golden calf of that God. So what happens with all of this? By God's very presence and by God's very command, it is driving fear into the heart of sinners concerning the holiness of God. God reveals his holiness, and what happens? It illuminates their sinfulness, and it drives fear in them. In fact, they come to the point where they don't even want to see God. They don't even want God to speak to them. They're so fearful because of God's holiness that they say in Deuteronomy 20 and verses 1 and 19, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us unless we die. So here's what God does. Through the way that he presented the law and through the law and the commands itself, it demonstrated our sinfulness in light of God's holiness. All of a sudden, the people who thought they were good now begin to understand just how sinful and deprived they are because they're no longer allowed to compare themselves with the goodness of other sinners. Now, they have to compare themselves with the holiness and the purity of God. So now they see their need clearly. I love what one author says. One author said it so well. He says, no one has a problem with God until God says no. Have you ever noticed that? It's not until thou shalt not that people all of a sudden have a problem with, with God, or at least your opinion of God. See, people love God, or at least their vision of God, or at least their graven image of God, until you come and say, thus saith the Lord. God said, don't do this. Then all of a sudden, they begin to get angry. Why? Because their sinfulness has been exposed in, in light of the holiness of God. So when we say thou shalt not lie, that's supposed to tick people off. It's supposed to tick people off because all of a sudden, now they begin to sit there and go, why not lie? Well, you you ought not to lie because God is a God of truth and you are not a person of truth. And then when we say, hey, do not commit adultery uh, or even look on a person with lust in your heart or you're guilty of committing adultery. And when we say that, we know that God is holy and God is pure. But what does it remind us is that we and you and I are not So the giving of all this law reminds us, hey, it reveals our true spiritual depravity, wickedness, and sin. It's a part of the law. It both, it not only restrains, but it reveals our spiritual condition. 
And so at this particular point, I think Paul understood that it would be easy to conclude that the, the promise or the law that he gave to Moses was going to be in contradiction to the promise that he gave to Abraham. Just follow along with me. Remember, when he gives a promise to Moses, or excuse me, Abraham, it is a, it's an act of grace, isn't it? He just says, I'm going to give you all these blessings independent of what you do or don't do. Do you see that that's grace? Then when he comes to Moses, what does he do? He talks about law. He goes, I'll bless you, but there's certain things you have to do, and if you don't do it, you will be condemned. So the question is, how do these things work together? One is grace, one is works. Clearly, they don't work together. And so what happens here, he answers that question, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Here's simply what he's saying. He goes, if I had given both promises as ways to be right before God, you're right, they would work against each other. If I had told, if I had given a way to me through grace, through Abraham, and to work your way to heaven to me in right standing through Moses, then you're right, that would be a contradiction. But I did not give the law of Moses as a means for you to make yourself right before God. So they're not conflicting. The only way to God is grace. But you will never know your need for grace unless you realize how sinful you are under the law. That will point you back to your need of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does it do it? Uh, Notice what he says. Uh, He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, I haven't. You might be surprised because I know I look tough, but I haven't spent any time recently in prison. I haven't. And, And I don't know if that makes you think highly of me or not. It'd be cool to have, you know, the pastor who went to prison. I just haven't. Probably should be uh, for things that I've probably done in the past. <laughs> like, I don't know. Can't think of what I've done, but I'm sure that I deserve something. All right. And so it's, it's trying to be more tough than I am. Look, put it this way. I deserve hell. Enough said. All right. And so, so the idea there is, is, is prison. But this is what I do know for prison to be is a place without hope. It's a place of full restraint, lacking of freedom, and uh, absolute hopelessness and helplessness and misery. That's how I view prison to ultimately be. What he says is, I gave you the law to make you miserable. I gave you the law so that you would come to absolute misery by being imprisoned by it. How does it work that way? Well, when somebody comes along and you and I begin to believe that, hey, look, here's the deal. If I can just obey God's law well enough, I'll be accepted by God. The pride, sinful pride in your heart and my heart says, bring it on, let's do it. This is the way I'm going to make myself right before God. Then when you and I begin to do what is right or try to do what is right, and then we begin to fail and fail and fail and fail and get up again and try again and fail again and get up again and fail again, eventually it gets us to a place of misery to where we understand now we're in deep trouble because the way to be right and good before God is for me to be good by obeying his obedience fully. I can't do it. And not only now can I not do it, but my, my problem is, is now I'm deserving of the judgment that is promised by the law. 
I try to make myself right before God through strict obedience to the law. I can't. Now I'm, I can't meet the demands of the law. I can't be perfect. Therefore, now I'm under the judgment of the law of God. And that's the place of misery. God wants to use the law in every person's heart where they understand I am absolutely helpless. I'm absolutely imprisoned to this sin. I cannot deliver myself from this sin. I cannot make myself better. I cannot be right before God's eyes. And when we get there, he says, that's the role of the law in your life. Because when you get to that point of utter misery, then you see me as utterly glorious. You see me as utterly wonderful. You see me as utterly good. It's interesting to me, John Stott sums this up so well. I, I rarely read uh, long quotes, but just stick with me. I'm going to supply it up here, but the words are so small, you're not going to see it. So just forget that we wrote it up there for you. Um, John Stott says this in his commentary in the book of Galatians. He said, after God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He's going to answer it. He says, he had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin provokes sin, condemns sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he is really, uh, what he is really underneath, sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. Now notice, I love this next part. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. It's only when you and I come to the understanding going, wow, see, I, I just realized for the first time that it, it's not just that I, I, I have the opportunity to try to earn my salvation. I've come to the point where I can't earn my salvation in any way, shape, or form. I was talking with somebody, got permission for them to share this with you, but we were sitting around in a small group setting, and, and a gentleman said, hey, I, I met somebody who, who knew you when you used to work at North Jacks. I was like, oh, how'd that go? You know, you're never really quite sure how that's going to go. And they're like, good, good, good. They just said that, uh, so you're, and they asked him, they said, so you go over to Mercy Hill where Pastor Mike is preaching? He goes, yes. And he goes, he goes oh, I guess, you, I guess you hear a lot about sin, don't you? Because <laughs> Mike likes to preach a lot about sin. And so I, I didn't really, I don't think my friend was trying to hurt me with that, but I was sitting there going, I, I don't really know how to take that. I don't know exactly what, what exactly that means. Are, are we like the, the sin church? Do we need to change the name? It's Sin Hill, not Mercy Hill. What do we need to do with that? And I begin to kind of think through it and process, process, uh, just kind of process it. And, and if this is what he meant, if he meant that all I do or what this church does is preach law telling men and women that you have to do better than what you're doing to be accepted by God, that you have to do better to be received by him, that all we do is preach the law, then all we're ultimately doing is placing more burdens on you, and we're doing you no good at all. Because we cannot meet, or we cannot cannot do what God has called us to do. If that's what he meant, then shame on us. But if what he meant by that is because we're preaching the whole counsel of the word of God, 
that within the word of God, there is going to be law. And when we preach law, that there is going to be an understanding of the depth of our sin and depravity so that then we then come along and share the good news of Jesus Christ so that people are not being coerced to do so, but freely and irresistibly begin to cling to the mercy and the grace of God. Then I say, amen, amen, and amen. So this is the role for an unbeliever is both to restrain and to reveal. But what about in the life of a believer? Point number two. Paul writes in verse 23, follow along if you will. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Here, here he is, held captive under law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So here Paul gives us an analogy. And this guardian in the first century, when Paul is writing this, would have been a slave, would have been a servant who would have worked in a household, and his primary role would have been to raise and to rear the children. That would have been their responsibility. But they would have done it by adopting the rules, regulations, and the structures and demands of the parents. The parents would say, here are the rules. Then this servant, this guardian would sit there and go, okay, here are the rules. Children, here's what you need to live by. Here's how you need to use them. They would teach them to them. They would let them know what was required by the parents. And then in turn, they would ultimately say to them, hey, look, if you disobey, then there's going to be consequences of your disobedience. But Of course, we already know the law that you would give children is to be able to keep them from killing themselves or anybody else and to be able to teach them so when they come out of the house, they know how to live. Would would you agree with that? And so that's what happened. But once they grow up and go out of the house, they're no longer under the law of those parents. Would you agree with that? Yeah, because all of us have had parents that said, as long as you're under my house... You'll abide by my rules. Anybody ever hear that before? All right? I haven't said that yet. But the day is coming. So anyway, that, so that day is coming. And so, so we know that, and we know that's ultimately it. But here's what Paul is saying. Paul is trying to point out, he says, this is the way that the law worked out in our lives. It was for a period of time a tutor. It was teaching us. It was teaching us our need for God. It was teaching us that we were sinners. It was teaching us that we could not work our own way to God. Impossible to be able to do. It was teaching us what holiness even looked like. And we realized that we were not, in fact, holy. He says, but when you grow up, you're no longer in need of a tutor. You're in no longer of need of this teacher. Why? Because the teacher did what it was supposed to do. What did the law meant to do? To get you to a place that you were imprisoned in your misery so that you would come to faith in Jesus Christ. He says, when you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's no need for the tutor anymore. The tutor's taught you everything. You've now grown up. You're not who you used to be. So therefore, you're no longer under the law. Y'all, you are no longer under the law. Now, I think i got to explain that sentence, don't I? Because the moment that I preach it, so, but you're tracking with me so far, right? So at least I got you. See, I try to give you the answers at the very end so that you'll stick for the whole time. So uh, here, here, here's where we are. So wh- what does it mean not to be underneath the law? Because the moment that you say that, people begin to u- lose their minds and lose their, mora- their morality immediately. They begin to say, great, I'm saved by grace. <laughs> I'm going to sin so that so that grace may abound. That's, that's not the heart of a true regenerate believer in Jesus Christ. So what is the purpose of that law for the believer? How are we supposed to understand it? 
when we talk about the fact that we are no, under, no longer under the law, we mean two things. First of all, no longer under the law means that we no longer use the law as a means of our salvation. You and I no longer have to try to earn right standing before God by how good we do day by day by day. That is an exhausting way to live. It is crippling. It is unsure. It is guilt-ridden. You and I don't have to go wake up and go, today I'm going to do better than the day before because maybe God will love me more today because he cannot love you more than what he already loves you because his love for you is not based on what you've done. It's based on what his son has accomplished for you. So you're not sitting around all the time just going there, man, I'm such a failure. I can't do this. What am I going to do? I got to do something that's going to make God love you more. God cannot love you more than he already loves you. You are free from that, right? Amen? Second, one day we're going to have a class on clapping, and we're just going to learn how to, how to, how to do that. But, but, but I appreciate the, the attempt. Number two, number two. No longer under law means that we are no longer under the curse of the law. When you and I decide and we hear, look, if you're just good, God will accept you, and our wickedness says, well, I can do this, I'm going to be good enough, we are automatically under a curse because we cannot meet, we cannot meet the demands of the law. He says, if you're going to go that path and try to be right before God by your own goodness, then you have to be perfectly obedient, and if you are not, you will be judged by God for all eternity. So when we repent of our sin and we decide that we're not going this way anymore, I'm up here. All right, very good. All right. We're not going that way anymore. All of a sudden, the curse that was once on us is taken off us. Where did the curse go? And went on Jesus Christ on the cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ and we took part in this great exchange. He gave us his righteousness, which made us acceptable by God, in the presence of God, to be children of God. And he took on all of our sin. And the curse that we deserve for our sin was placed on him and was satisfied through his death, burial, and demonstrated through his resurrection that that sin had been fully eradicated and forgiven. And so this is, this is what happens. We are no longer under the law for you and I means that we don't have to keep earning our salvation and we are no longer under the curse of the law, fearful that if we sin that God is going to jettison us. And so we're free from all of that. And then we come down. That's why the Bible says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So then the final question is, and I know you're still begging for it, but what part does the law have in the life of a believer? Well, let's go back to our picture here of this tutor, of this, of this guardian. Uh, when, when that child grows up and, and he's out on his own and he's no longer underneath the law of his home, does he jettison everything that he learned when he was growing up? Uh, let me, let me say it this way. So I grew up in one of those more strict homes, and I know some of you are probably mo- far more strict, even when I said this in the first summer, and people came back and they said, well, you think you had it hard. Okay, and they kept telling me, I don't need to hear that. All right, but just he, here's what happens. I, I grew up in what I thought was a pretty strict home. Uh, my parents made sure that I was not only home at nine on school nights, but I was in bed by nine. No 901, no 902. That's even when I was 18 and I was a senior in high school. You're like, why were you 18 still in high school? I failed in first grade. Thanks for bringing that up. And so, so I, I finally, I'm not bitter, but anyway, and so, 
So uh, you're more, but I didn't go to prison. So, um, so, so here's what ends up happening is in the midst of all of that, um, my parents are giving me all kinds of things, and they're telling me what time to be home. They're telling me time to be in bed. They had a list on the refrigerator telling me all the things that I had to do. Uh, I would get a paycheck. I'd work somewhere, and my dad would literally take the paycheck, go to the bank with me. He would cash it. He said, now we're going to divide it up. Here's the money that goes to your tithe first. This is what you do. Number two, you go and you pay your bills. The third large section is to go into savings, and here's 25 cents. Go nuts, right? And that's basically what he would do. And I would do that all the way through high school. Uh, and then they would have a long list of things, crazy things, like make your bed. Like, clean up after yourself, put your dirty dishes away, mow the grass. This is ridiculous. And I remember getting so upset with that, and I remember them just pushing these laws on me and thinking to myself, man, when I'm free, I'm not doing any of this. I'm going to go down, I'm going to be great, I'm going to do my own thing. And sure enough, I went out and I got my own job and got my own money, and little did I know, shortly after, I would be making my own bed, cleaning my cash, paying my bills, and doing everything else. Here's why. Because when I found that I didn't, life did not go well for me that what they were doing is they were actually showing what life looks like when it's lived well, when it's lived right. But here was the difference. When I was under the law, I hated it. When I was freed from the law, I loved it. That's the difference. See, the law and following the commands of God cannot change your heart. It can't change it. We're not after behavior modification here. We're active, complete, radical transformation of God, changing the very person of who you are, changing you from the inside out. And so what I used to hate, I now love. Do you know why I love it? Not because of anything good in me, but by myself, but because God gave me a new heart. His spirit dwells within me. And now, because I love Jesus, he rescued me from hell, now I want to be like that Jesus. And those commands show me what it looks like to be like Christ and to live a life unto Christ, not to try to earn my salvation, but just out of joy and thanksgiving because of my salvation. Do you see the difference between the two of those things? I, I hope you do. It's the text. So what do, what, do we, what do we do with this? Just two things. Let me just say, first of all, uh, let you and I not be afraid of using the law biblically. Let us not be afraid of calling sin, sin. Uh, We live in such a world today that it seems to be almost frightening to be able to call sin what it is, that it is depraved, that it is opposite of the character of God, of who God is. One of the reasons we don't see probably more people come to faith in Christ is because of the way that we share the gospel. We share the gospel immediately as, I've got good news for you. Jesus died for you on a cross, and now you can be adopted as sons into him and have eternal life. Isn't that great? And they're like, I I don't get it. Um, I wish he hadn't gone through all that trouble. I don't really see a need. Thank you. Until they understand their need, which the only way to get there is through the law that was given, to understand that we all have fallen short of the glory of God, there cannot be any true affection for what Jesus has done and accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's do that in our witness. Let's do it in our homes. I know many of you have little children. Man, those creditors are everywhere, aren't they? They're just all around this place. It's more than one way to grow a church. Amen? Amen. And so, 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 so here's what I would say with the kids. Preach the law to them. But be very careful. Be very careful that you are not trying to get them to rely on their own righteousness 
and to raise a bunch of Pharisees within the home. Don't you forget the fact that when you say don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, that you're giving those laws, that's what it is, but it's intended to bring them to misery, not to self-righteousness. It is intended for them to come. When you give the law, we get so frustrated because they're like, they're still lying. And I've told them a hundred times they're not lying. Why do they keep lying? Because the law does not convert the heart. You want to get your children to a point to where they literally come to a place where they go, I can't. I can't. I, 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 I can't be good enough. I have tried to be good enough. And then what ultimately happens at that point? The gospel that you've been preaching, the good news of Jesus all Christ all that time. One of our kids came to me and go, I can't do it. Should have been me on that cross. I should have died. I should be judged for it. Instead, he was. And he goes, what do I do? I go, what if I told you to do? This is why Jesus died. Place your faith in him and rely on his goodness and not your own. So let us make sure that we do that. Number two, make sure that you and I, make sure that you and I are seeking holiness in a church. God's grace is deep and it is wide. It covers a multitude of sins. It covers your sins past, present, and it covers them in future. But let you and I want to be obedient to God, not to earn his, his love, not to earn his acceptance, but because we've been accepted, because we have been loved, let our desire to be like him and let us submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Will we fail in more ways than you ever want to? Is his grace sufficient? Absolutely. But the same grace that is sufficient in forgiving our failures is the same grace that is there for you and I to tap into for our obedience and our submission unto him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for your word. Now that we come in a time of response, I pray that we will respond that we'll have a clear understanding of what this law was all about, what it was for, and what it is even for now. God, let us walk in your grace, but as we walk in your grace, let us pursue holiness. Let us pursue obedience, not to earn your acceptance, but from your acceptance, so that you might be glorified. We love you, and we praise you in your name. Amen. Let's stand. I'm going to be down here. I'd love to pray with you. If you've got a question, or if, if you need to pray, you can come to the altar Whatever it is, let's just take a couple moments and reflect and respond and be obedient in light of what we've heard today.